0: All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. If I can invite everyone back in, make sure you've got your handouts for the next presentation. Let's bow our heads and then we'll start. We'll let everyone, we have people still coming in. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and for your love. And Lord, we do, we want to be a part of what you're doing today to show the world what you're really like. Teach us, Lord, how we can do that. In your precious name we pray. Amen. This imagery in Daniel chapter 8, we need to take note of it. Because remember, there was a ram, there was a goat, there was a horn, and then there was a sanctuary that was trodden down and vindicated. All of this language is being taken. Remember, this isn't lions and bears and leopards. The language of Daniel chapter 8 is taken from the great book of Leviticus. Now, Leviticus was about the sanctuary services of Israel. It climaxed The book of Leviticus climaxes with the great day of atonement, which is where the sanctuary was cleansed in their worship service, in their religious cycle. Daniel chapter 8, Gabriel takes all of this language that would have been very common to Daniel about the sanctuary and his worship, And he uses the language of Daniel's worship service itself to illustrate to us what God's going to be doing in the end of time. What is God going to be doing? When did the Jewish year climax? At the cleansing of the sanctuary. And in human history, what is God going to be doing in the end? He calls it cleansing the sanctuary, but it's the vindication of his what? His character. He's seeking to illustrate this for us. So I want to go back and pick up some of this language. In Leviticus 16, notice what it says. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the what holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will... Why will he die? For I will uh, appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Now, take your hand, one of your handouts with me, the one that says the sanctuary on it. Let's see if I've got that one floating around up here. Perfect. The Old Testament Sanctuary. Does everyone see that? You can study this out later on your own. We don't have time to do a series on the sanctuary this morning. But when you come in, the first thing you saw there was the altar from the, you're coming in from the east. You saw the altar, then you saw the laver. You walked into the first apartment of the sanctuary where there were three things. There was a table of showbread and an altar of incense and a candelabra. And then you moved into the second compartment of the sanctuary. Do you see that there? Exodus 25, 10 through 22 talks about a second portion of the sanctuary wherein was the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat. Now, what did God say he was going to do in that apartment? He was going to be there. He was going to appear. His presence would be there. And so he said, Moses, tell Aaron and his sons not just to come in at any time into this place, because I'm going to be there. And was God in the beginning? Was God literally there? Yes. Yes. And if you were to walk in, I mean, that's hard for us to picture in our scientific postmodern age. A lot of people say, well, I sure would like God to be visible. Well, this is one time where he was veiled. He was there himself inside that most holy place. And if they would have just gone in at any time, what would have happened? They would have seen God. Whom else would they have seen? Themselves, Themselves and how out of harmony they are with that. What would that disharmony have produced in them psychologically and emotionally? Torment. torment. And what would have happened bearing the full weight of that torment? They would have died. Remember, no man can see the face of God and and live. Remember, we've covered that last weekend. So understanding a little bit of the geography of how the sanctuary was laid out, notice Hebrews 9, 7. Go back with me to the handout. Into the second apartment, only the high priest entered, and notice he only entered it, how often? Once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people. In Leviticus 23, it says that this day, it happened exactly on the 10th day of the 7th month, and it is the what? Day of Underline that, the Day of Atonement. How often did it take place? Once a year. Once a year. What was its purpose? In Leviticus 16:5 through 10 it gives us a little bit of the process, the ceremony. It says, He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord of the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats. One lot would be whose? The Lord's. The other would be the... Oh, this imagery is powerful. What is a scapegoat? No, not a substitute. What's a scapegoat? Someone who takes the, the blame the rap, the blame. Take this imagery. Aaron shall offer the gold on which the lot of the Lord fell and it shall be a sin offering. That goat's blood was shed. But it says, but the goat on which the lot of the scapegoat fell, he shall be presented what? Alive. Alive. He was not to die. Alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it, into the wilderness of the scapegoat. Now notice, does this imagery look familiar? Is there someone who has been lying about God? Did he figure out a way to involve the church in those lies? Pretty effective, isn't it? But God takes this language in Daniel chapter 8 and when you really understand what Leviticus 16 is about, what it begins to say is God's going to take a people and through the shed blood of Calvary, He's going to take all of those lies off of His kingdom and He's going to place them back on where? The scapegoat where they began. Who's really to blame? Who is that? That is powerful, isn't it? That's how it's going to end. People are going to see... Both sides clearly. It doesn't mean all will make the right decision. But people are going to see the truth. Amen? Amen. In Leviticus 16, 15 through the rest, I'm going to leave that for you just to read on your own. I've put it there so you can see. But in Daniel chapter 8, it says, The vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is what? That means it is sure. You can count on it. It began with what kingdom? Media Persia. And it will end sometime between 1761 and 19 what? 69 in our day. Well, some of yours. Not mine. It says, but keep the vision secret for it pertains to many days in the future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for many days. It says, then I got up and... Again, and carried on the king's business, but I was what? Astounded at the vision, and there was none to what? Why did the vision end here? Look at it really carefully. Why did the vision end here? Was Gabriel done talking? Look at it. He was right there in your hand. Was Gabriel done talking? No. He was exhausted and what? And he was sick. And what happened? He fainted. He passes out in the middle of this vision. And what would have caused Daniel to pass out? Because the language God chose to use in Daniel chapter 8 struck too close to home for Daniel. Where was Daniel at this stage? He was in captivity. What did he want above every other desire? What did he want? He wanted to see Jerusalem restored. He wanted to see the sanctuary rebuilt. He wanted to see all of that put back in its proper state. And all of this language that although Gabriel was referring to sometime way into the future, all of this language is very personal for Daniel, is it not? And when Gabriel said, "...Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be restored." Notice the process that Daniel went through in his mind. 2,300 days. Divide that by 360. That's just a few years. That's six and a half, seven and a half, somewhere around in there, years. Oh God, does that mean... Yes, something horrible is going to transpire here. But in just a few more years, we're going to go back into Jerusalem. It's going to be restored in the sanctuary. Which sanctuary was he thinking of? Heavenly or earthly? Which one was personal to him? You can imagine how excited he got. Are you with me? Just a few more years and we're going to be home. The sanctuary is going to be restored. And then he remembers that in prophecy many times... A day represents what? And what does this mean to Daniel as he's considering this? Oh no, God. Oh no. Don't tell me that we are going to be in captivity and the sanctuary lay in ruins for 2,300 more years. And the very next thing he hears is Gabriel. In the midst of his thoughts, Gabriel breaks in and says, the vision of the evenings and mornings is what? True. And what does that do to Daniel? It makes him so sick. What does he do? He passes out in the middle of this vision. Notice in Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Azarus, high Daniel observed in the books the number of years, which was revealed as to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem. Namely, what? What did he do? He went back to the books and he found in Jeremiah's writings that it would be for how long? He's on Their own. captivity will only last for 70 years, not 2,300. And he's at first encouraged by that. Isn't that true? But has God ever shortened someone's punishment? Has he ever lengthened it? If he can shorten it, he can lengthen it. And Daniel's thinking, well, maybe we haven't learned the lessons we were supposed to learn in 70 years. Maybe God has what? Maybe he's changed his mind. Maybe we're going to be here a lot longer than what God originally intended. Could that have been a possibility for Daniel? And so Daniel begins to pray. One of the most beautiful prayers of the entire Bible is found in Daniel chapter 9, where Daniel is pleading for this not to be the case. In Daniel 9, 20 and 23... 20 through 23, it says, Now while I was speaking and praying, and notice what he was doing. He was confessing my sin. He said, I was confessing my sin and the sin of my people. What? Oh, notice most of us just spend time confessing what we've done wrong. Isn't that true? But Daniel was so moved, he got on his knees and he was confessing and repenting, not just his sins, but the sins of his people too. Was he personally identifying with them? Saying, God, please have mercy on us. I was presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. What was the holy mountain? Jerusalem. That Jerusalem would be restored. And says, while I was speaking in prayer... It says, Then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously. What vision previously? Daniel chapter 8. That's the one where Daniel fell asleep in the beginning of it, remember? The one which I had seen previously, he came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering, and he gave me instruction, and he talked with me. He said, Oh, Daniel, can you, can you hear the compassion in Gabriel's voice here? Daniel is going through such torment and agony. Oh, Daniel, you didn't understand what I was referring to. He says, Oh, Daniel, I've now come forth to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, you are highly esteemed, Daniel. Give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Daniel nine twenty four. skip down with me. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city. You're worried that the whole vision applies to who? You guys. Only 70 weeks of this vision applies to Israel. Notice, take out your other hand out with me. It says, under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be restored. Everyone have that handout? I'm going to ask you to take your pens with me. How much of this vision did Gabriel say applied to Daniel, his people, and Israel in the Holy City? How much of it? 70 weeks. 70 weeks. Now, you know, I am convinced that what I should start doing is handing out calculators that say Life Unlimited on them. <laughs> Because this is going to require a little bit of math, but I'm, it's, in the beginning it's easy math, okay? If there is such a thing. Seventy weeks. How many days are in a week? Seven. So how many days would be in seventy weeks? How would you find that out? Walk through with, walk through it with me slowly. How would you find that out? You would take seven and multiply it by 70. How many days would that give you? 490 days. Is that how many days would be in 70 weeks? Now, remember, we found out that in Bible prophecy, many times a day represents a what? So this is 490 days years how many years of the full 2300 would apply to daniel his people jerusalem and the earthly sanctuary how many years of this would apply to him 490 i want you to take your pencils and do you see on this chart where it says 70 weeks are cut off for your people do you see underneath where there's a blank and it says years Right in that 490. Right where it says years. Yeah, there's a blank and then it says years. 490. Now let's go back to our handout. Hold this in one hand. Because we're going to map it out. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. You are to know, Daniel, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. He was assuring Daniel, Jerusalem would be rebuilt. Jerusalem would be restored. What does that mean? It's one thing to rebuild it. It's one thing to restore it. It would not just be be rebuilt, be rebuilt and be used by someone else. It would be rebuilt and restored to who? To the, to the Israelites. It would be given back to them. And what would what would begin this process? It says there would be a issuing of a a decree. From the issuing of this decree for these events to transpire, it says until when? until the Messiah, the Prince, should come, there will be how much time? Seven weeks. And then 62 weeks. And then what would happen? No, not built again. What would happen seven weeks and 62 weeks later? From the decree, after seven weeks and 62 weeks, what would happen? It's unt- Yeah, it's from the issuing of the decree until the Messiah, the Prince. Is everyone with me? We're trying to walk slowly here. It says, It, Jerusalem, will be built again with plaza and with moat, even in times of distress. Go back and read Nehemiah and Ezra. Was Israel rebuilt in times of distress? Was it given back to the Israelite people year, a few years later? Yes. It's interesting. In what kingdom... What kingdom's time period? What kingdom's reign did that decree go forth? Do you remember? Media Persia. Is that where the vision of Daniel 8 started? Yes. So, how much of this time is divided off of the 20 subtracted from the 2300 that applies to Israel? How much of it? 490. Now, we take that 490 and look at the bottom there. Remember, Daniel said there would be, Gabriel said there would be seven weeks, then there would be 62 weeks, and then who would show up? Messiah Messiah, the Prince. Seven weeks, how many days are in a week? So how many days are in seven weeks? 49. Now, I've put that there for you on the chart. You don't have to fill that in. We're going to make this math easy too. So how many years would that be? 49 years. And then after 62 weeks, how many days are in a week? Seven, so how many days would that be in sixty two weeks? Four hundred and thirty-four, and a day equals a year, so how many years would that be? So after forty nine years, that's one way mark, then there would be four hundred and thirty-four years, and after that, who would show up on the scene? Let's go back. The two boundaries for this time period is the decree and the coming forth of who? The Messiah. The decree would have to come forth sometime in the period of Media Persia's rule. There were actually four decrees that went forth. But the first one, if you start from that date, it would land the coming of Christ earlier than any historical record that we have. It would contradict every historical record we have. Do you understand what I mean? If we begin with the first decree... The coming of Christ comes too early. It comes outside of the bounds of when human history says it should have occurred. Are you with me? Do you understand what I mean? There was a, as a matter of fact, that decree kind of short-circuited. Then there was a second decree that was a restoring of the first one, but that one too is also too early. There was a fourth decree, but that one would put the coming of Christ way too late, according to any historical references we have. There's only one decree that lands the coming of the Messiah in a time frame that falls into harmony with what history teaches us. I know there is great debate today over when Christ came. But, there is a time frame where people say it's within two or three years. Are you with me? And any other of the other four decrees lands the coming of Christ far outside of that variance. Are you hearing me, what I'm saying? There's only one decree that lands the coming of Christ where it historically is dated. That decree was sent forth in Ezra chapter 7. It's right there. Read it with me. Some of the sons of Israel, and some of the priests and the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants, they went up to Jerusalem in response to this decree. And it says they went up in which year? The seventh year of who? King Artaxerxes. I've placed the date of that year beside there. What year was that? 457 B.C. Take out this handout. And there on the left... Where do you, where you see up at the top a blank BC decreed to rebuild? Put the date 457. Are you with me? If we start from 457 and we run across the bottom, 49 years later we come to which date? It's right there. Which date? 408 BC where Jerusalem was what? Rebuilt. If we follow 434 years later, we come to when the Messiah should be showing up. And according to history, go back with me to your handout. Let's read Luke 3, 1 through 2. It says, now in the 15th year reign of Tiberius Caesar, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. What did the word of John, word of God to John say? Prepare the way of who? Who was about to show up in just a few months? And what year was this? The 15th year of who? Tiberius Caesar. When do we know historically that this year it was? What's the date of this year? 27 A.D. or C.E. Regardless of who you, depending on who you are today. Some people say A.D., some people say C.E., common era, is what that stands for. We live in a secular society. People want to say A.D. now, or C.E. rather than A.D. So whichever you are, I'm I'm bending. It's before common era or common era now. But it's interesting. C.E., just say B.C. too, either one. But notice, the decree went forth in what year? Let's review. The decree went forth in what year? Look on your handout. No, the decree went forth in what year? To rebuild and restore. 457. 49 years later, we have 408. You add 430 years, 34 years to that, 434 years to that, it lands us in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, which is, guess which year? 27 A.D. To the year. It matches up. When did Christ come? 27 A.D. Are you here this morning? Is this too much math? Have I lost you already? It's very simple. 457 was the going forth of the decree. 49 years plus 434 years would be the coming of the Messiah. Does this match up with the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar? What year should it land us on? What year should this prophecy land us on? If you add 434 years to 408 BC, it lands you in 27 AD. Was that the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar where John the Baptist started going forth and saying the Messiah is here? Interesting. Interesting. Let's continue. Remember, all Gabriel is doing, all Gabriel is doing here is giving Daniel a foreknowledge of how much of this vision applies to who? Israel. And what will transpire in those events. In Daniel 9:26. go back to your handout. After those 62 weeks, the Messiah will be what? Cut off, Cut off and have nothing. The people of the prince, the ruler who is to come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end will be will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be desolate, war. Desolations are determined. And he, the Messiah, he will confirm the covenant with many for how long? It's interesting. How long, how much time is left? If you start 70 weeks and you do seven weeks, are you with me at the bottom? And you do 62 weeks? How many weeks is that? 69. How many weeks are left out of the 70? One. Gabriel addresses this one week. He says the Messiah will confirm the covenant with many for how long? One week. But in the middle of that week, he will put a stop to the sacrifices and grain offerings that you're so concerned about, Daniel. That you want to see restored. The Messiah is going to bring all that to an end. It's amazing. How long would the Messiah confirm the covenant with Israel? How long? We're just quoting scripture. How long? Lunch is getting cold. One week. In the midst of that week, what would happen to the Messiah? He would be cut off. And it would bring sacrifice and offerings to an end. What is the middle of a week? Three and a half what? How long was Christ's ministry? How, how many days are in? Oh, you can do it How many ways you want to. How many days are in a week? Seven. How many days would be half a week? And a day in Bible prophecy represents a what? A year. How many years did Christ minister for before He was crucified? Three and a half. Wow, do you see how it matches up? From 27 AD to the crucifixion would be that half of that final week. Wow, this is the best prophecy in all the Bible because it proves Jesus is the Messiah. Are you with me? That gives me goosebumps. We're serving the right dude. But remember, there would be 300, or sorry, uh, three and a half, three and a half more years left. That would lead us to what year? 34 AD. What happened in 34 AD? The first Christian martyr. Stephen was stoned. And the gospel now went forth. Israel ceased to be God's chosen people. They would only be God's chosen people for from Daniel's day for 490 years. In AD 34, they ceased to be it. And the gospel went forth to who? The Gentiles. Do you remember the parable where the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, how long shall we forgive those who trespass against us? Shall we forgive them seven times? Jesus said seven times what? What is that? Does that ring a bell? What does a time represent in Bible prophecy? Do you remember? A year. What was Jesus saying to his disciples? I have been forgiving my people Israel and I will only do it for 490 more years. I will come, I will be cut off at the very end. He was whispering to them, giving them hints. When Jesus said to the woman, My time has not yet come. Do you remember when he said that to to Mary, his mother? Everything was about the timing. Why? Because he knew the timing had been exactly prophesied by Daniel. And he knew his life was following a greater plan. Isn't that powerful? Wow. Do we find this part of the prophecy ringing true in application to Daniel and his people from Gabriel? But remember... Is that the full two thousand three hundred years? No. no. no, not at all. There's quite a bit left of this prophecy that began. by the way, four fifty seven I got to go through. Do you still have your handout five thirty nine to three thirty one BC does four fifty seven fall somewhere in the middle of those two dates from the previous chapter? Remember, these are the dates of Media Persia. Do you remember that? We said that's when the 2,300 days would begin. Does that decree fall within those two dates? Yes. And then notice. How much more time is left? 1,810 days or literal what? The first 490 years... brings us to 34 A.D., when Stephen was stoned. Yep. Put it in the question and answer basket. I'll take your questions, but put them in the basket. 490 years, 34 A.D. If we take that, I'll answer it, but it's actually irrelevant. Because the point is, Not that Stephen would be stoned. The point is, what would come to an end? What would come to an end? What would come to an end? 490 years. If you add 490 years to 457 B.C., what date does that give you? 34 A.D. No matter what event you attach to it. But then you come up with how much more time is left? 1810 years left of this grand prophecy. If you take 1810 years, 1810 years, and you add that to 34 AD, remember, we are looking for a date that falls somewhere between 17, do you remember? Between 1761 and 1969. What year would this give you? 1800 and... Does that year fall between these two dates? Did this year fall between these two dates? Does this one fall between these two? Let's look at it from a different angle because I don't want to talk about that year yet. I want you to take your handouts with me. And let's look at it again. It says, he said unto me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings in the holy place will be properly what? what? What are we looking for in this year? Something's going to happen that will accomplish what purpose? The restoring of the saying that God, people would begin to see that God is like principle B rather than like principle A. Do you remember that from this morning? something would transpire where people would begin to see the truth about God. The Revised Standard says it will be restored to its rightful state. Once again, the Darby version says the sanctuary will be, what does it say? Vindicated. Circle this. In Daniel 12, Daniel, worried about all of this, says, how long will it be until the end of all these wonders? And I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river. He raised his right hand and he and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. Have we seen this prophecy before? Where did we see it? When did we see it first off? Remember which night? Thursday night. In which chapter of the Bible? Oh, see, I'm pulling on your... You you said you wanted to have some mental development. Are you feeling it right now? Oh, the world is watching too much TV. Sorry. We're losing the ability for synapses to function. We've seen a time, times, and half a time before. Where did we see it? Daniel chapter 7. What did it refer to? What would be in power there? What would rule for a time, times, and half a time? The little horn, who is that? Yeah, it's the Christian church, but in a state of having fallen away from what God called it to do. Got it? That time, times, and half a time we discovered was three and a half, what, years... Which in prophecy, this is a summary. If this is the first time you've been here, I apologize. We're just summarizing what we've covered so far. In prophecy, that's actually 1,260 years. Remember, we covered this. When did we say this 1,260 years began? When was that final third horn uprooted? Do you remember what year? How many horns would be uprooted among the ten in Daniel 7? Three. When was the final one uprooted? 538, we saw that it would go for 1,260 years, that the church would rule the world for 1,260 years, and then something would happen 1,260 years later. When would that be? 1798. Now, this is simply when it was a ruling world power. Are you with me? Was this when the church was set up? No. Is this when the church came to an end? No. This is just the time period when it was a what? Ruling world power. Why am I zeroing in on this? Because notice what it says. All these things will transpire for a time times and half a time, and as soon as they are finished shattering the people of the, whole, the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. As for me, Daniel said, I heard, but I couldn't understand. So I said, my Lord, what will the outcome of these events be? He said, go your way, Daniel. These words are concealed and sealed up until when? Until the time of the end. What are we living in today? Do we have enough history to be able to understand what all this is talking about? Did Daniel, was Daniel privileged to the history that now we look back on? Was Daniel privileged to the history that now we look back on? No. No, he couldn't seal it. It was concealed, sealed up until the time of the end. Many will be purged, purified and refined. The wicked will act wickedly. None of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight, they what? They will understand that from the time that the regular is abolished, and notice, and the abomination of desolation set up, there would actually be 1,200 and what? 90 years. years. What is that talking about? Is this different than that? Yes. Well, what is it indicating? Go to your gray section with me. When it says that the regular is abolished, what does it mean by that? We talked about that this morning. God's continual principle of other-centeredness it becomes abolished. And what gets put in its place? A perception of God to where He's all about who. Do you remember that from this morning's presentation? From the time that this is set up, the abomination, not the existence of a church, but when the church falls away. From the time that this transpires and the abomination of desolation set up, from the time that the apostasy begins to when it comes to an end will be 1,200 in how long? 90 years. Not just when it's a ruling power, but when it has what? Not power, but influence. When did this start? Look over there in your gray section. Do you see between? Do you see the word between? Let's read this. Between 496 and 508... The ten kingdoms into which Rome had been divided converted to Orthodox what? The kingdoms of Europe, were they Christian when they started out? No. No. But they converted to Christianity with the exception of three Aryan kingdoms, which would soon be what? Uprooted. How many horns were uprooted? Three. Three. It says, although Christianity's political reign, what kind of reign? That means when they would rule the world. And although that would not, as head of both Christian church and state, would not be established till 538. It says, by Clovis' baptism in 508, Europe had embraced apostate Christianity, setting her up as the abomination of what? Desolation. From this starting point of 508 we see the church's political reign over European nations would end 1,290 years later, which would be when? 1798. It says, but apostate Christianity's spiritual influence and effect on the world would not be completely broken. Did the church's fallen influence end right here? You got to talk to me, did it? No. Did its political reign end right there? But did its influence end right here? No. The church was set up. The church gained influence. The church's influence began in what year? 508. 508. When did it become a world power ruling all? When did that world power reign come to an end? But notice what it says, Daniel 11, sorry, 12, 11 through 13. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. But notice how blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to what? If we could map this all out on a straight line. In 508, what began? Influence. Was it a political ruling power at that point? Was the church in charge? But had all the ten divisions of Europe converted to Christianity? By 538, what had happened? Just conversion? They became the ruling power. By 1798, what happened? The ruling power came to an end. From this point to this point is 1,290 years. From this point to this point is 1,200 and this is the time times and half a time. Are you with me? But notice it says, blessed is he who waits until how long? 1,335 years. What date do you get if you add 1,335 to 508? What year do you get? Huh? In Daniel 9, it's 1844. Here, it's 1843. Why the difference? What was going on between 1843 and 1844? It does not point us to a specific event, but another era. Are you with me? See, notice what it says. And we're not going to talk about that yet. I just want you to see the book of Daniel points to this time period. In Daniel seven nine through eleven, it says, "I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was white as snow; his hair, the hair of his head, was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames; its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming up out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him; myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and what does it say?" The books were open. Do you remember what we covered in Daniel chapter 7? The church would say monstrous things about who? But the court would be set. And the judgment would begin. And the dominion would be given back to who? The saints of the Most High, because we are joint heirs with Him. Do you remember how His dominion would be taken away from the dust that the church had trodden it through? And it would be restored by God Himself without human agency, we read this morning, didn't we? It would be restored to God. When did God begin doing that work? When did he begin doing that work according to what we've discovered this morning? Between 1843 and 1844. Notice in Hebrews, sorry, Revelation 10 verse 7. We don't have time to do a seminar in Revelation, but it says, but in the day when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, how many angels were there? Seven. And when the last one's about to blow, it says, then the mystery of God will be what? This is what all the scriptures are pointing us to. And I've only taken you, the, taken time to put you through the dates today to help you see that this is relevant to who? We are living before this time or after it? After it. Do you know what that means? God has been doing something for the past over 150 years. And what is he trying to finish according to Revelation 10? The mystery of who? Is there a mystery out there in regards to what people think God's like? Yes. Is that why they're not experiencing the spiritual fulfillment that God would have them? Is it? Yes. These are not rhetorical questions. But we are living in a time that is very precious to all of heaven. Everyone in the Bible who understood these prophecies regretted that they were born at the wrong time. Do you know when sometimes we look back and we say, I wish I'd been born back then. Everyone in the Scriptures who understood this wished they had been born after these dates because they wanted to be a part of the finishing of the mystery of God's. Isn't that powerful? And we take it for granted. We got bills to pay. I'm not going to go through that list, but you get my point. Paul cried out in Romans 3, may it never be, rather, let God be found what? What was Paul's great passion? It says, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you, God, that you may be justified in your words and you may be, that you may prevail when you are what? In Daniel chapter seven, what did we see transpiring that would remove all of the lies and give dominion back to the kingdom? What did we see happening? It was a Judgment, a court scene where books were opened. And Paul, John said in Revelation, the mystery of God would be what? It'd be finished, it'd be completed. Paul said there's going to come a day where God is justified when He is judged. Who's on trial right now? God like He's never been before in the hearts and lives of people. In Revelation 6, no, flip over. Revelation 14. John said, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the eternal gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. What were they preaching? The gospel. And then it says to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Why does the gospel need to be preached to those folks? And don't just say that it's because it affects all of them. What has happened to them? Where have we seen this every nation, tribe, tongue, and people before? Did we see it last night? Did we see that the church would control every tongue, tribe, nation, and people? That they would all be influenced by the church's falling away and they would all get the wrong picture of what God is like? Did we see that this group would be deceived by apostate Christianity? Did we see that? Now comes a group who are preaching the gospel To these people. How many want to be a part of that? And notice what they're crying out. Fear God and give glory to Him. For the hour of, what does it say? His His judgment has what? Come. Who's on trial here? God is. And He's saying, will you be a part of what I am endeavoring to do to vindicate my name? In Revelation 19, it says after this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven. What were they shouting? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But notice what it says. Three things. Salvation. Glory. And what? Belong to who? They're rejoicing because something belongs to God. It's now his. Has glory been restored to God? Has power, according to this, been restored to God so that he can reign and his dominion be an everlasting one? But what's the third thing here that it says? It's the first in the list. Salvation Salvation has been given to who? What does that mean? Does God need saved? Does God need saved? Does God need saved? Yes. Not from sin but he needs saved from all the lies that the church has spread about him. Does he not? And I want you to follow what I've shared here. Paul looked forward to a time where God would be justified. Usually we just talk about you and I being justified, don't we? John looked to a time where God would be saved. Did he not? We like to talk about us appearing in the judgment but John and Paul both and Daniel looked forward to a time where God Himself, His character, would be judged. And the promise is that when it all comes down, He began this in what era? 1843-18? to 18? I'm going to tell you what happened during there in just a moment, and then I'll let you go. But God began it right here according to the Scriptures. And you and I are living in a time where this should be our paramount concern that the world truly see what God is like because we're living in the time where it's going to be restored back to its pristine clarity like it was in the time of Jesus. I want to be so part of that, don't you? Man, I want my whole life to be wrapped around that. We are living in a time where all others long to live. When the mystery of God would be finished and salvation as well would be given to God he saved you will you give your life to him for him to use in an effort to vindicate and restore his character what a powerful time we live in is it not these are not just dry prophecies about world powers. God had to bring up history so we could see where we fall. Do you understand what I mean? But the point is not to give us a history lesson or to get bogged down in math. The point is that we would see once we, we do fall in the right spot, that we would see what it is behind this date. Martin Luther understood this vi- these visions that I've explained to you. He came to the mid 1800s as well. Oh, do you know what Martin Luther said? Martin Luther said the world would end at that stage. When he saw everything being completed, he thought that meant Jesus was going to what? Come back. But remember, before Jesus can come back, the gospel has to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, tribe, and people to restore the truth about him that Satan has lied about throughout the centuries. It wasn't the coming of Christ that was being prophesied here. It was the final display of the character of God, not in word, but in deed. His people would start to reflect it. There were others, William Tyndale, do you remember him? What was he famous for? He translated the Bible into English. He also looked at the mid-1800s and thought the world was going to end. Isaac Newton, anyone know him? They all looked to these prophecies and understanding them came to the same conclusions that we have come to today. And they thought though that the event would be the end of the Following in their train, there was a farmer in the 1830s here in America. And all over the world, there was a great awakening. People were aware of these prophecies. They said Jesus was going to come back in the mid-1800s. And this farmer in America, he started to study these scriptures. He was actually a, a deist, close to an agnostic. He started studying these things and saying that the Bible was relevant for his time period. But he too, like Newton and Tyndale and Luther, thought that the world was going to what? End. And people started gathering around him. He was just a farmer. But he simply said one day he was saying a prayer. He felt such burden, such a burden. If you knew the Lord was going to come back in just a few years, would you feel burdened to tell people to warn them? Would you? Are you alive today? Yeah. <laughs> he felt such burden and passion, but he was a farmer. He was afraid. Or sometimes, are you afraid sometimes to share? Because you're just a farmer? Not literally, but you know what I mean. He said, Lord, I'll make you a deal. If someone asks, then I'll tell. And he thought it was done. No one's gonna ever ask me. Someone asks me, then I'll start talking about it. You ever do that? Well, Lord, if you if you if you open the door, I'll you know, don't make me initiate it, God. I'll respond if someone asks me about it. But you ever done that before? You ever been in his shoes before? A few hours later there came a knock on the door. His nephew said, You know, our preacher can't preach this Sunday. They're wondering if you would come and preach to us. He was mad. He went out into the grove behind his house. He went into that grove. A farmer, he came out a preacher. He started traveling around. And word got out and people heard the things that you have heard this morning. And they were dazzled by it. But remember, all of this was everyone thinking that Jesus was going to return in this time period. Are you with me? Farmer's name was William Miller. those who followed him were called Millerites. Matter of fact, if you go to Chicago, right outside of Chicago, there's a little school by an Advent Christian church. They have the largest Millerite library in North America today. You can go back and look at the old Millerite publications. They thought Jesus was going to return, but did he? No. American history... States that that was a great disappointment. It was also a great humiliation. Can you imagine what life would be like if you'd been around convincing everybody that God was going to come back, and then all of a sudden people were making fun of you, and then all of a sudden it didn't happen, and they said, See, we were right. You guys are fools. Can you imagine the humiliation? Did they have the year right? Did they have the event right? No. Well, why would this happen? Why would God let this happen? For three reasons. Well, one reason, but it involves three aspects. Be patient with me, I'll let you go. See, these are the greatest truths ever committed to mortals. Remember these two principles? One was in what direction? And what was their focus? One was in a direction of, and the other was on a focus of, remember, these are the two great principles. Did the church live according to this principle during the dark ages? Yes. When Miller was preaching... Thanks. Is that right? Perfect. Only God and the angels are infallible. Amen. Amen. You are paying attention. I'm impressed. (laughs) The church for 1,260 years had lived according to this principle and communicated monstrous things about God. And when the whole world thought that Jesus was going to return, not everybody did, but a lot did. Everybody got on the bandwagon. but, But think about it. If you thought Jesus was going to come back, Would you have got on the bandwagon if you were really convinced? Would you have? But you would have done it for one of three motives. You just didn't want to be lost. Are you hearing me? You were just trying to escape hell. Are you hearing me? There's a hell to shun, is there not? But who would have been your primary concern in that motive? There would have been others that thought, whoa, their favorite hymn was, I've got a mansion. And don't be mad at me if that's your favorite hymn. I'm not talking about you. But their favorite thing to talk about were the streets of gold and how big their house was going to be and how glorious heaven was going to be all oh, for me. They just wanted to gain heaven. What was their, who was, who were they motivated by? The fear of punishment and the hope of reward is still only caring about yourself, isn't it? Hear me. Conversion. If you, if you decide to follow Jesus based on fear of punishment or hope of reward, that's not conversion, brothers and sisters. God will take you wherever you want to start, okay? But that's not conversion, that's self-preservation. God wants you in the light of His love for self to die and you start living for something greater than yourself. Are you hearing me? But the church was full of this principle, was it Not? And when people thought that Jesus was going to come back, even the people actuated by this principle got on board, did they not? Heaven to gain, hell to shun, but there's a third motive. There was a third group. And the best way I know to illustrate that, in 1993, I spent the summer with a little lady named Mrs. Johnson She was 86 years old at the time. I was going door to door that summer. and She had opened her house to my cousin and I. Mrs. Johnson was a hoot. She had a car that was so old, it was green. And it was so big, if you would have put a sail on it, you could have taken it down the river. Are you with me? It was a boat. One day we took it to get gas for her. And she said, well, here, take this with you. Make sure you put this in with the gas. We said, what's this? Now, this was in 1993. She gave us a can. (laughs) I looked at it, and it said lead. She said, my gas, my car doesn't take unleaded gasoline. That's how old it was. One day, we were following her to church, and we didn't know where she went to church. We'd never been there before. We were just going to follow her. We were following. We thought, how hard will it be to follow an eighty-six-year-old driver? (laughs) I mean, you know, man, she had she she must have been putting them lead cans on the throttle. (laughs) We came up to a traffic light and it turned yellow. She was a football field away from this light, and she steps on it. (laughs) <laughs> goes blazing through as right as it turns red while she's going right through it. 86 year old lady! She was 86 year olds on the outside. She wasn't 86 on the inside. My cousin and I, we looked at each other. We had to follow her, so we just ran the red light. We got to church. She jumped out. She had her cane in her hand. She said, Fellas, do you know what it means when a light turns yellow? <laughs>
1: I'm from the South.
0: (laughs) She says, it doesn't mean slow down. She looked at us and she said, it means step on it, honey, because it's about to turn red. And then she went into church. That was Mrs. Johnson. You didn't mess with her. She woke up earlier than you every day. She had this habit. She would go down on her front porch every day when the sun was setting and she'd sit on her rocker. The challenge was her house faced the east and the sunsets happen in the west. And my cousin and I, we would look at her and laugh, scratch our heads. What on earth is she doing? The the show's on the other side of the house, we would think. She goes down there and sits on the wrong porch. My cousin said, why don't you go tell her? (laughs) So I worked up enough courage. I went down there. I sat in the rocking chair beside her. And she's just out there staring into the horizon. Knowing that the sunset happens back here, I just sat there and rocked with her for a while. Waiting for the opportune moment. She wasn't saying a word. She was just sitting there rocking. I cleared my throat. I said, "Um, Mrs. Johnson, you come down here every day and you sit on your front porch instead of your back one while the sun is setting over there. I said, I hate to break it to you, but, but you're missing. You're missing out. She looked at me and she said, what are you, simple? <laughs> I'll never forget the look in her eye. She welled up in tears. She said, I don't come here to watch a sunset. She said, I'm looking for a sunrise. She says, I come here every evening. Not to look at what's going on over there. But I cast my eyes to the east. Looking for my Jesus to come back. She didn't say her Lord. She didn't even say Jesus. She said, my Jesus. Did you hear that? It was personal for her. It wasn't about her. She was in love with who? With Him. It was all about Him. Do you see how Principle B had been restored in her life? When people thought Jesus was going to come back, There were people involved in both sides of the equation, were they not? But when Jesus didn't come back, everyone who was motivated by what was in it for them, what happened? There was no more heaven to gain, no more hell to shun. It was as if God was concentrating the petri dish. Are you with me? The only people who were left... For those who had a love relationship with their Jesus. He concentrated. He had brought everyone out of the different churches. But there was still a mixture. And then he took that mixture and he weeded it out even more. Almost like the story of Gideon. Are you with me? To where the only ones who were involved were ones who did not understand. They might have still been hung up on some theological issues. They didn't know it all, but they knew him. Amen? They knew what he was all about and they loved him. William Miller was one of those. He made it through this. And the only reason I think he made it through was because he said, I never preach the date without preaching the person behind the date. He was in love with Jesus, though he was wrong about the event. And I want to share with you that God took this group of people, these stragglers. He took this group who were in love with him And he began to give them understandings of the gospel that were steps back toward the purity of what the apostles understood. There are two pictures of God still left that I want to share with you. We're still in the section of spiritual fulfillment. And there are two pictures of God that I want to communicate to you this afternoon. The apostles understood these two ways of seeing God, but they were lost in the dark ages. Do you know when they resurfaced? They began in 1844. Would you like to see those two new pictures? Would you like to see the apostles understood it? Two ways of viewing God that will contradict what the church taught about Him in the Middle Ages, but will liberate you to see Him like you've never seen Him before. Do you want to see it? Then please, come back today at 2.30. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we want to be a part of the work that You're doing in our lifetime. It's not about a name. And God help us to understand it's not even about membership. It's about a message. It's about a movement. It's about seeing you for who you really are. And allowing that truth about you and your love to be reproduced in our life. Lord, we don't want to be the kind of Christians that live according to the principle of A. Lord, we want to be principle B. We want to live for you and for others. We want to show others what your love is truly like. And all of the scriptures point us forward to this time when you are going to do great things through us to vindicate your name. Lord, there have been truths about you that have only resurfaced in the last 150 years. Many Christians from many denominations are beginning to see these truths. God, give us the courage and the wisdom to see them too today. In your precious name we pray, amen. If you want to see God radically different, be back at 2.30. We'll see you then. God bless you.